Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by Hover.com, who are the company that you go to when you need a domain name. They are also a good company for getting an email attached to that domain name. Find a domain name for your idea. Go to Hover.com slash CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. So there's this guy, Ren Bostelar, downtown Toronto creative type guy. One of the guys behind the popular StatsCan parody account on Twitter, did some comedy writing for CBC Radio, had a photo blog, Bike Rack TO, where people with all kinds of different bodies would pose semi-nude with their bicycles. Sex positive kind of a guy, bike positive kind of a guy, progressive guy. Anyhow, he turned out to be a creep. For over a decade, Ren Bostelar had been anonymously posting nude pictures of women to the internet without their permission. Women who had posed for him for his website, women who had posted their own pictures to private closed groups online, ex-girlfriends of his, like many women. And what he would do is he would post their nude pictures to 4chan, the self-described assholes of the internet, along with their personal information. He would dox them. He would include their real names, the photos that they had on their social media accounts, their physical addresses and phone numbers. He exposed these women to countless, just thousands and thousands of strangers. And then he would encourage them 
to just have at them. And they did. The women were harassed. Guys would send them dick pics. It was bad. And the thing is, they didn't know why it was happening. Eventually, one of the women figured it out. Sophia Sudugi. She talked to some of the other women who had been targeted in this way and tried to figure out what they had in common. And what she finally realized is that their only connection was that they were all connected in one way or another to Ren Bostelar. And she confronted him. At first he lied, denied it. Then he came clean. I'm sick, he said. And the thought of getting caught excited me. He apologized. Four of his victims went to the cops, who investigated Renbo Stellar. Ultimately, he was never charged, and he avoided a criminal record by agreeing to a peace bond, basically a restraining order, which has conditions like staying 100 meters away from the complainants and not communicating with them, staying off of 4chan, deleting any photos he might still have of them. His lawyer says that the experience itself has been punishment enough. Renbo Stellar lost his job as a clerk at a camera store. He was publicly shamed, argues his lawyer. The story did make the papers, and, you know, Ren is a husband and a dad. He has paid a big price. And anyhow, argues his lawyer, the larger lesson we should all be taking from this, and this is a quote, is that what you post on the internet is not private. Did you catch that? The larger lesson of all this is not a lesson for Ren Bostelar, but a lesson to the women he hurt and others who might behave in the same way. At least one of these women does not agree. Sophia Sudugi wrote about this for us, and one of the things that she reminds us is that in some of these cases, the women didn't even post their pictures to the internet in the first place. Okay, but then, like, what is the larger lesson? Was justice served here? It has been five years since this awful concept, this idea of revenge porn, cyberbullying, since that became a national concern. Five years since the suicide of Amanda Todd, and four years since the suicide of Rutea Parsons, when Stephen Harper vowed to take action. Now, that led to Nova Scotia launching an anti-cyberbullying law, the so-called Rutea Parsons law. But that law got killed, it got struck down, when a lawyer launched a successful constitutional challenge against it. Now, that lawyer, privacy lawyer David Fraser, who was against the anti-cyberbullying law, now supports new anti-revenge porn laws. And he's going to join me from Halifax, Nova Scotia, in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jacob Saltiel, Jonah Kaplan, Jessica Darling, Amanda Palmer, Matt Lasseline, Chelsea Pate, Amanda Bennett, and Robert DeCesare. Robert, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because the media represents our windows to the outside world, and it's important to understand how clean those windows are before drawing conclusions from what we see. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. And today's episode is brought to you by Hover.com. With Hover, it is incredibly easy to set up your domain name with the most popular website builders. They have an incredibly simple feature called Hover Connect that lets you automatically connect your domain to the place where you build your website in just a few clicks. No more digging through help articles to figure out how to get your domain working. If you already have a bunch of domains scattered across other domain providers, you can save money and make your life easier by bringing them all to Hover. And Hover is the company used by CanadaLand for managing our domains and our email. And it's just been effortless. Eligible domains include free who is privacy. And that means you don't have to spend more money to keep your address and phone number away from just strangers who want to access it on the internet. Having a website does not mean you have to expose yourself in that way and you shouldn't have to spend more money to have privacy in that way. With volume discounts, the more domains you have in your account, the more of a discount Hover will automatically apply to your account. Find a domain name for your idea. Go to hover.com slash CanadaLand and get 10% off of your first purchase. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, small business accounting software that makes billing painless. Makes billing painless. Billing can be painful. I had a guy on the show once, a freelance writer who also happened to be a reformed criminal. Billing one of his clients, a magazine that he wrote for, was painful for him because they didn't pay up. They were trying to stiff him. So he made it painful for them. After months of having his invoices ignored, he just walked into their offices, walked right past reception, unplugged a computer from a workstation, and walked away with it. Now, FreshBooks cannot do that for you. There is no app for that. But they can make it harder for your clients to ignore you. When your clients receive an invoice via FreshBooks, they know that the excuse, oh, it must have went to my spam folder, oh, I haven't had a chance to open it yet, that is not available to them because FreshBooks tracks and tells you when they opened up your invoice. And that greater degree of transparency has an effect, and that effect is it gets you paid quicker and therefore painlessly. FreshBooks is feature-rich. You can automate time-consuming tasks like organizing expenses, tracking your time, following up with clients with just a few clicks. FreshBooks lives in the cloud, so you can securely access it from your desktop, your phone, your tablet, wherever you are. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Try it out for free for 30 days. You don't have to give them a credit card. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you and you will be doing us a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. David, the first time that a government in Canada tried to do something about revenge porn after the Ritea Parsons case... The first time that a law was introduced, you launched a constitutional challenge 
against that law. Why did you do that? Well, when they came out with the legislation, it was introduced only a couple of weeks after the death of Retea Parsons. It was produced in a very heightened emotional environment. Uh, and when I took a look at it, it, it was plain to me that it was a dumpster fire as far as uh, civil rights are concerned, particularly freedom of expression. It categorized any communication made online that would hurt somebody's feelings or harm their self-esteem as being cyberbullying, which, of course, would include a whole lot of communication online that's in the public interest, a whole lot of tweets by politicians. And I thought that in the emotional environment in which it was drafted, they just went completely overboard. And the question for this particular issue when it comes to what's often called cyberbullying is, in fact, where do you draw the line, particularly when you're trying to come up with legal responses? So it was declared unconstitutional in December of 2015, and I'm told uh, that the government has gone back to the drawing board. And I've seen some of the initiatives that they're workshopping, one of which is to single out and have as a separate category what's often called revenge porn. So the original legislation was overreaching, in your opinion, and I guess the court's opinion, and since it was struck down, I guess it would have covered revenge porn. Now that that's gone, is revenge porn illegal in Canada? Well, certainly. And, and, and one thing that I take a fair amount of comfort from is the fact that in Ontario, there was a case not all that long ago where the Ontario court, in fact, applied the privacy torts uh, in order to provide a young woman with, with a remedy and, and actual significant damages. Now, that, that case is going back to trial for other reasons. But I do think that one of the great things about the common law, and that's the tort system, the ability to sue somebody outside of the criminal justice system, is that it does, in fact, uh, have a fair amount of flexibility and resilience, and judges are inclined to see a remedy where there's a situation that's calling out for one. But we have also had in the meantime, uh, for example, the province of Manitoba, which uh, introduced legislation a while ago that creates a specific tort, so the specific ability to sue somebody for the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. And Alberta has followed suit with a statute that was passed, I believe, in 2017, so this year, but it hasn't yet been proclaimed into force. And also there, there is existing criminal law, criminal harassment, which is sometimes problematic in being applied online. And there's other torts like intentional infliction of emotional distress that raises the bar pretty high when it comes to kind of getting yourself a, a remedy in court. But certainly there's a bit of a patchwork, but I've, I've, I'm comforted by the fact that our justice system seems pretty resilient in dealing with situations like this. Okay, to unpack that a bit, some of those were existing laws that were always around that have nothing to do with the law catching up with technology. You're referring to uh, civil torts, privacy laws, harassment laws. You don't need to update a law like that necessarily because whether you're posting online or on a uh, public street corner on a telephone pole, here's the naked photo of somebody, here's their phone number, here's their name, uh, have Adam guys. That is, I guess, a privacy breach. That sounds like harassment to me. Yeah, that's right. And, and so the although the privacy torts in Canada are relatively new, a couple provinces have had privacy statutes that allow you to sue somebody for unreasonable invasion of privacy. But in the last five years in particular, we've seen a significant development in, in that area as the Ontario Court of Appeal actually imported into Canada the existing U.S. privacy torts, which are the, the ones that are, that are mainly being applied recently. 
But it's always worthwhile to have a conversation about whether or not the existing laws, for example, the law related to harassment, is keeping up with the online environment. It was drafted in a context where it was principally dealing with unrelenting phone calls and physical stalking. And so it requires somebody to fear for their safety. And so you'll probably recall the, the Gregory Allen Elliott trial in, uh, in 2016, where he was acquitted. And that charge was under the existing criminal harassment statute. And more recently, uh, we had the Patrick Fox case in Vancouver, where he was convicted. And so criminal harassment requires somebody to fear for their safety. And there's some perceptions that say, look, if somebody is down a, a fiber optic cable or over the Wi-Fi, they're not in your neighborhood necessarily. Can you really be fearing for your safety? And I think that there's a, a, a movement of thought that suggests that, in fact, this also needs to be expanded to deal with the psychological harm that can happen from online harassment. It's interesting how when I think of somebody getting like a frightening, harassing phone call, being called names or just heavy breathing, we're quicker to accept that a person might fear for their safety based on that phone call. And we're quick to dismiss people making that same complaint about messages online. Well, and I think one of the problems that we have more generally is that those who are involved in the justice system, particularly the criminal justice system, sometimes lack the imagination or lack the nuance with respect to the, the more recent culture and the more recent environment on online. So very often when dealing with cyberbullying, the authorities will say, well, just turn off your phone, uh, which isn't a realistic thing to say to a person who lives their life online, who has their communities online, communicates with their family and friends online. And so in some cases, when you have uh, an individual, for example, a prosecutor or a police officer who doesn't spend a whole lot of time online, I think they're often in a blinkered sort of situation where they look at things entirely through the traditional interpretation of the law and the traditional context context in which it was arisen, I sometimes say there's a, a, a significant failure of imagination to take a look at how can these existing laws be applied in the online world. And in most cases, they can. We've One of the, the great things about the way Canadian law has traditionally been written is it's technologically neutral. We don't need a cyber fraud law. We have a fraud law that applies whether you use a fax, a carrier pigeon, or, or email. But we need to make sure that those who are involved in enforcing our laws uh, have the understanding of the nuances of the online environment, have the understanding of, of the culture that gives rise to things like dick pics and, and revenge porn and online shaming and doxing and all these other relatively recent phenomenon, which if you were a, a police officer trained in the 1980s, that would be so outside of your experience that it's perhaps not unreasonable to think that that wouldn't be the lens through which you look at these sorts of things. When the Amanda Todd case happened and the Retea Parsons case happened, the very idea that it was part of the culture to flash a stranger online and allow for that photograph to even exist, or Retea Parsons, the fact that she was photographed by these young men and that kids were sharing pictures like this, was absolutely shocking to mainstream Canadian society. And it's just a few years later, and now, like, the fact that people take pictures of themselves and share them, which is not to apply that to those cases. Some of those were non-consensual, but people do this and it's not so shocking. You know, if for those who are still dating, it's now fairly normal. Certainly that's what, that's what I understand. And often I see or detect a subcurrent of victim blaming in these sorts of things. Because often the reaction is, well, just don't take pictures of yourself. Don't share these sorts of images. And implicit in that is saying, well, it's your own fault. You got yourself into this situation. And that is absolutely not helpful.
it absolutely is a species of victim blaming, and it doesn't take into account, I think, the current reality, which is a, a culture in which people take a photo of the coffee that they have in the morning, the muffin that they have in the morning, and the pretty flower that they walk by on their walk to work. And, and people have good cameras and good video cameras in their pockets all the time, and they're recording the most mundane and the most intimate activities of their lives. And so just telling people not to do that is like abstinence education. I think that it's very helpful to have safety tips, for example, and, and best practices. One of the most interesting things that, that I've heard in this whole environment, in this whole discussion, was the former privacy commissioner of, of Ontario, Anne Kavukian, a, a very distinguished, elegant woman, providing guidance on how to take safe selfies, which is don't include your face in the photo, and that way if it's distributed, it's not going to be necessarily associated with you, which was a bit mind-blowing when you look at it in the context of somebody who's uh, who I would not expect to be having that conversation with her. And so that's the reality. But to, to get back to the Amanda Todd case, and, and I think this is a significant theme, You'll recall that the police and the prosecution service in British Columbia didn't initially pursue charges. Now, what happened to her was extortion, extortion plain and simple in the criminal code. But they didn't see it as that, and they didn't treat it as that, and therefore they dropped the ball. And subsequently, when there was public outrage, they go back and they re-examine it, and oh my goodness, it was extortion. Oh my goodness, it was child pornography. The same thing happened in the case of Retea Parsons. The reaction of the police and the prosecution service here initially was, oh, well, that image of her being sexually assaulted, that's a community issue. That's not a criminal issue. And then, of course, there's an enormous public outrage, tragically prompted by her death, and they go back and re-examine it. Oh, yes, in fact, that was child pornography. And so I think that's one of the problems that we have. The the benefit, I think, that has come out of Bill C-13 that created this, this crime related to the non-consensual distribution of intimate images is that I hope it has opened the eyes of the police in particular that these things that happen are criminal and are not things that can be just shrugged off as kids being kids or a community issue or whatever you, you want to call them. And so we have seen, for example, I was just looking through a legal database yesterday, dozens of prosecutions under Bill C-13, under the intimate images provisions of individuals who have, who have shared intimate images of their partners without their consent, very often in the revenge context, but in some instances in a bragging context. Um, and I think that that takes into account, if you'd asked me a number of years ago, what was the gap that existed in our in our criminal law, I probably would have pointed to that in terms of the enormous emotional impact that that has on victims. And I think that it really does merit public condemnation. But the fact that there have been many prosecutions under it does tell me that the police are start, starting to take this more seriously. It's not solving the problem. Uh, from what I understand, for example, Facebook took down 14,000 accounts in just January alone for revenge porn and sextortion, as it's called. And so so it's a, a significant problem. It's not necessarily going away. And I'm not sure that the law is necessarily the tool that's going to fix everything. But certainly, there's been a significant change over the last five years or so in the approach to this as an issue. You said that sometimes there's this implicit victim blaming message. That was actually explicit just this past week in this case in Toronto, where Ren Bostelar, his lawyer, says the larger lesson we should all be taking from this is that what you post on the internet is not private. That seems like an explicit message of victim shaming. Oh, I think so. And, and, and in, in fact, I would counter that the big lesson takeaway is that people can be assholes. 
people tend to do this sort of thing, which is absolutely horrible and it's devastating to the victims. But it's no help at all to blame the victims. We blame the victims. We blame the Internet. You know, you point out the cops shrug this off. I mean, I think it's very serious when somebody's intimate images are posted without their consent. It is arguably a lesser crime than what happened to Amanda Todd and Retea Parsons. Retea Parsons was arguably raped. Uh, Amanda Todd, as, as we say, she was extorted, sexual extortion of a minor. You know, I've got this one picture of you. Give me more and more lurid photographs or I'm going to send this to all of your friends, which the guy did. Those are crimes. We don't need some kind of like new designation. Oh, it's revenge porno. It's an internet crime. Oh, maybe she should have thought differently. Like those are atrocious crimes that simply were not uh, investigated properly or prosecuted properly. Well, that's right. But but you also then look at what what then happened. And and in both the cases of Amanda Todd and Retea Parsons, those images were used for the purposes of slut shaming. And so it wasn't just the fact that those images were taken and were seen by some people. They were used as weapons against them. And that is a, a larger societal issue that we need to be focusing on. It's all part of kind of rape culture, slut shaming, things like that, which obviously the, the law is not necessarily the right instrument for. But when somebody is significantly harmed by somebody else's actions, I do think it's appropriate that either the civil justice system or the criminal justice system uh, or both of them come into play. But of course, in a properly nuanced, properly applied way that takes into account, for example, issues of freedom of expression. And sometimes it's hard to say exactly where freedom of expression comes into play in these sorts of things. But I can just well imagine a scenario. And in fact, there is a public interest exception in the intimate images offense, because I can imagine if you uh, if you had a reporter who took a photograph of a politician going to the bathroom in an alley around the corner from a nightclub, they would have an expectation of privacy tucked away behind a dumpster. But that image might, in fact, be in the public interest. And you could then then convey. But if there's no public interest involved, then that threshold related to freedom of expression doesn't necessarily come into play. But I've seen very often and too often an overreaction by legislators to try to solve problems with laws in the Internet context in particular, where they go overboard. They don't necessarily understand the nuances. Uh, And I think very often, if if you look around our legislatures, most of the folks involved are not of the internet generation. When you look at the police forces and the prosecution services, and then particularly when you look at judges, certainly they're not digital natives, but also just by nature of their jobs, judges aren't on Twitter, judges aren't on Reddit, or, or, or I expect they're not on 4chan either. Uh, and so there, there's a, a significant kind of cultural piece that, that comes into play that needs to be taken into account. And so, but, but I think that while it might not be moving as quickly for some, and so we we had the Elliott case in, in Toronto where there was an acquittal, and many people thought, no, in fact, that there was a real fear, or there was a reasonable fear for for safety on the part of the of the complainant in that case, um, and then it takes a couple years or a year later when we have the Patrick Fox case, which stands out as yes, this criminal harassment statute can come into play in the right environment online. David, can you remind us of the Patrick Fox case, just in a quick summary? Yeah, so so the Patrick. Fox case was of an, an individual, an ex-husband who was initially outside of Canada and his, his ex-wife remained in Canada. And he set up a, a website uh, with a whole lot of information about her. I'm not sure that it was in fact 
untrue, but it certainly was spun in a very derogatory way uh, and was providing information about where she lived, about her previous activities, uh, allegations related to drug use, being an unfit mother, things like that. Reminds me of this Kardashian case this week. Yeah, and, and, it, and it was done purely for, for vengeful reasons. And it appeared from the evidence that the person thought that they knew where the line was in the law and was going right up to it, but was not going over. And I think they were emboldened by the fact that at the time they were in the United States uh, and were kind of outside of the reach of the Canadian justice system. But ultimately, he was deported from the United States into Canada, was arrested and charged, and was just recently found guilty by a jury in, in Vancouver for criminal harassment and uh, and I think one, one other offense. Uh-huh. I actually wish it was a judge alone decision rather than a jury because you'd actually have a written decision from the judge working through the nuances that would provide some instruction for other judges uh, subsequently. It feels like this is taking place on three different levels, and, and you, you point out there's the cultural level, then there's the legal level. I think in between, there's the online forum level. Like Twitter and Facebook have as much power, Instagram has as much power as the cultural level, or maybe more power than the legal level. And their policies, you know, Kardashian was posting these revenge porn pictures onto Instagram for a while, then they, they kicked him off of Instagram. He had a run on Twitter before they caught up with it. Are we leaving too much of this to these private companies and their policies as the actual law when it comes to people's sheer ability to do this kind of thing? Certainly, that's a, a good conversation to have, but I'm not sure I would put too much on them in terms of, of legal responsibility. So, for example, Facebook just introduced in April a, a very interesting feature that if somebody reports revenge porn, it goes to the front of the queue, it's examined, and if it's found to be, yes, this is revenge porn or it fits within that category, that image is taken down, not only where the person complained about it, but they use algorithms to take down that image every place it appears on Facebook and Instagram, both of which are are owned by Facebook. And I hope they'll actually license that to other providers because that's a really great initiative. And, and if somebody then tries to post that same picture again on any Facebook property, it is banned and the person's account is looked at. And so I think that's a good measure. And, and in my experience, when helping victims of these sorts of things, if it's on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, any of these sorts of properties, that stuff gets taken down pretty quickly. They take it quite seriously. The problem is there are websites that are entirely devoted to revenge porn and they are outside of Canada, they are outside of the United States and so they're essentially outside of the reach of the Canadian or the US or other justice systems and so it's very difficult to get those things taken down. So even if we were to come up with the most marvelous law in Canada, which I think for revenge porn we actually have quite good laws, the reach of those laws don't extend into companies that operate out of Russia and Moldova and Kazakhstan. Yeah, if you are really determined to spread around uh, images of somebody or really anything on the internet, you're going to get there. And if you're really determined to protect your own anonymity uh, as you do so, you're going to get there too. You're going to be able to do so anonymously through sites that aren't going to take them down. That's right. But the reality is that most people who are looking to harm somebody in this way, or, or most may be overstating it, but certainly it's been my experience that it's a large portion. They're looking to shame the person in front of their community. And so they're threatening to, or they do in fact post it where their friends can see it and elsewhere. So the more problematic stuff 
in terms of the emotional harm and the intended harm is posted in places like Facebook and Instagram where others will see it. These kind of corners of the internet where, where this is what sites are devoted to or, or kind of little cesspools in the corner, they're not uh, appearing high in the search results of your favorite search engine, for example. But it's still, it, it's obviously, it's harmful and, and it can follow you. And some of these sites are, are devoted to essentially trading these sorts of pictures. They're intending, it, it appears, to stay in the shadows. So they don't actually name the person. Um, they might allude to who the person in the, in the image is. Um, but uh, so at least that has the benefit of it's not going to show up in a search result for a prospective employer who's, who's looking, who's doing an, uh, an online or social media background check. Uh, but it's still harmful, but it just, it, it's a different sort of harm and it doesn't necessarily uh, do the same sort of immediate damage to the person's reputation in their community and their relationships with their friends and family. It's the cultural level that if that changed, if, if the culture becomes kind of in your, like if it becomes just so normal and boring that like we understand that everybody has a naked body under their clothes, people show those bodies to other people. And in a modern context, that means that there's digital pictures. Like it, it feels like we're moving from a place where like it was, it was more shaming that people just know that somebody like sees somebody's naked body than for a guy to have it known that he's such a scumbag that he would violate somebody's trust and publish that. Like that was less damning of him than the picture was, you know, more damning and shaming of the woman. If that conception were to change, that's really what defangs this whole practice. Well, it, it, it might. And, and certainly I've heard discussion and speculation that kind of 20 years from now, 30 years from now, that there's just going to be so many naked selfies of everybody out there that, that nobody's really going to care. I've had kind of victims across the table from me where the images are of completely normal activity that human beings do. And, and there's there's no need to be, at least I, I don't find it to be particularly shameful. I find it to be tragic, the, the, the impact that it has on, on somebody. But it may hopefully come to a point where people aren't going to be pointing to those pictures or that video and then pointing at the individual in a shaming sort of way. And, and uh, yes, I think that's a cultural norm. And that's not anything that the justice system can really contribute to. I wonder what impact that'll have on this law. I mean, my initial issue with C-13 where it says, uh, you know, you can't share intimate pictures of somebody without their permission. Anybody who's ever shared porn doesn't get permission from the porn stars. But of course, the way that that is defined is if the picture was taken with a reasonable expectation of privacy. So I guess a porn star or somebody involved in a porn shoot would understand, I don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. This is for public consumption. I was concerned, like, well, does that put the onus on, like, the pornography consumer to know the circumstances under which the pornography was created? Maybe that was, like, in practice that hasn't been a problem for the courts. I don't know. Uh, you talk about such a widespread behavior as pornography consumption and sharing of pornography. I was, it seemed like that law might have some kind of wide-reaching impacts. I testified in front of the parliamentary committee when the, when the bill was being debated, and, and that was an issue that I brought forward, which is there are certainly going to be circumstances where you don't know or, or the person who's accused does not know the actual provenance of the image. But the remedy for that or the fix for that in the legislation is there has to be intention on the part of the individual who shared the image. Then the prosecution service has to prove that there was an expectation of privacy at the time that the image was was taken. So it, it it doesn't seem like it could readily be used in circumstances where, for example, it's an image and you don't know who the victim is or you don't know where it came from. And it should not be applicable or, or even capable of being applied if somebody goes on 
I don't know, a, a conventional porn website and shares the photograph with one of their buddies. Has that been a defense that people have made? Is like, hey, I was just surfing porn. Certainly, I, I haven't seen a prosecution, for example, where, where that sort of scenario has come up. In all the cases that I've seen, the victim is known to the accused and the victim is the complainant and they have the testimony from the, from the victim. And so those sorts of things shouldn't come up. But it, it is worth it and it does raise the, raise the discussion because one of the things that, that was notable about the aftermath of the photograph being taken of the sexual assault of Retea Parsons is to think about what was the intent of the individuals who received and then further disseminated the, the image. And it wasn't necessarily in all cases to harm. So the, it, it appears from the circumstances that the, the first image was taken for the purposes of bragging. The person like had their thumbs up and, and it was uh, yeah. taken in that sort of context, was shared with a, a couple other people uh, who then might have passed it along saying, hey, look at this, or hey, this is interesting, or hubba hubba, whatever, whatever that is. Perhaps not at that point with the express intention of harming her, but certainly absolutely callous with respect to her privacy interests and, and the harm that, that could ensue. So the slut-shaming is, is an element of it, but it's not the primary purpose. But then, before too long, that becomes the primary purpose, and, and the intent is to, is to harm, or it's to reinforce their perceptions and their arguments that that she was a willing participant or that somehow this was something that she brought upon herself. Um, and so there, there are, in fact, layers. David, I have a little sympathy for this whole, oh, they should have known better before they sent a naked photograph of themselves. But trying to see this in, in a, you know, kind of like looking forward, so much of it hinges on this idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy. I, I don't think that when somebody sends a photograph of themselves to a, somebody they're dating or flirting with that they should expect that to show up on the open internet or on Facebook. But is this law future-proofed? I mean, if we are increasingly moving, as we're suggesting, into an environment where it's just no big deal to send naked or even sexual images of yourself around, doesn't that erode your reasonable expectation of privacy? If, if that just becomes a common practice when you're, when you're flirting, people that you're talking to via Tinder who you're never actually going to meet up with in person for the purposes of just like a, a sexting encounter, if you're sending these far and wide, are we going to get to a place where this law becomes useless because that reasonable expectation of privacy cannot be established? I can imagine those sorts of arguments being raised. Certainly with the uh, judiciary that we have right now, I don't think across Canada we would likely see that hold a, a whole lot of weight. But yeah, when, when things are calibrated according to what is a reasonable expectation of privacy, where our privacy norms have changed so significantly over the last little while, and I'm not talking about just with respect to intimate images and things like that, but also with respect to 15 years ago, the bulk of the population were very concerned about any information about themselves appearing on the internet. And now, fast forward to the future where people are sharing a significant part of their lives online across the generations, including the exact same people who are extremely fearful about it 15 years ago. And so certainly there has been a shift in, in privacy expectations and, and the amount of information that people are willing to share about themselves. Uh, and so, 
we may in fact come to that point where there's just so much stuff out there and it has become such the norm that in fact, uh, while on one hand it's a good thing that it would no longer be used usable as a tool for shaming people, it also might mean that we surrender some collective privacy interest or individual privacy interests that, that we have in it. So I, I do think that whenever you have a, a law that's tied to technology or that's, that's focused on dealing with a mischief that happens in a, in a technological context, I, I think it's important for us to revisit it every, every few years. Yeah, and finally, I mean, I, I could see that as privacy norms change, that eroding the teeth of this law. And, you know, there's the other front, which you talked about earlier, the journalist's defense. And, you know, you have this hypothetical situation of a politician peeing behind a dumpster. Well, of course, there was the Anthony Weiner case where his sexting pictures were plastered on the, on the front of every newspaper. And as a journalist, I think that that was A-OK, right? Like, I think that few would suggest that he had a right to privacy of those images. I mean, he was involved in a despicable behavior with a minor at one point. So there's not a lot of sympathy for him. But I wonder, as our definitions of who is in the public eye, and as more and more people put themselves, this is always how we determine, well, are you a public figure? And usually it's when people with their own agency make themselves public figures in various ways, which more and more of us are doing. I could see that really softening the teeth of this law. It might. And, and in fact, that, that might be a, a conversation that's going to be forced sooner rather than later in, in the Canadian courts. Uh, we have this a, a very unusual case out of Nova Scotia where an individual who is an instructor at Mount St. Vincent University, he says he was coerced into uh, sending a dick pic to a student with whom he was involved, a mature student. She forwarded on that picture to Glenn Canning, the father of Retea Parsons. Glenn tweeted that photograph, the dick pic. It was subsequently deleted. And so the man involved uh, is currently suing. And so there's a lawsuit pending in the courts of Nova Scotia is suing Twitter suing the woman involved, is suing CTV for having broadcast, I think, a blurred copy of the photograph in the context of a news story, uh, and is also suing the university. Remarkably, he's not suing Glenn Canning, who publicly disseminated the, the image in the, in the first place. And so it would be interesting to see what sort of argument CTV would raise, and this is in, in the civil lawsuit context with respect to his, uh, his privacy interests. And, and I would think that in an instance like that, the public interest uh, in reporting on it and not doing it in a gratuitous sort of way kind of overrides that privacy interest that the individual has, or at least that, that makes CTV much less blameworthy than the person who, who clicked send on it in the first place. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that case. It hadn't occurred to me. I think it's such a great illustration of how, you know, a, a law for one is a law for all. Under a different context, I mean, that story is even more complicated. You've got a professor who's involved with a student and there are accusations going in his direction, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. And so it, it's a pretty convoluted and involved scenario in which there's a significant dispute of facts <laughs> on both sides. So he was an instructor at the Mount, a part-time instructor at the Mount, and the woman involved was a, a mature student. Uh, so they were both in their 40s, and apparently they had a relationship. I think that is common ground. He says that she pressured him to send her a dick pic, and he said no for the longest time, but ultimately relented. She has since said she's essentially been dragged into the public eye, which is uncommon for people with allegations of sexual assault for the victims to come forward or, or even be in the public eye, suggesting that the relationship was exploitative from the get-go and therefore was problematic. So it really does. It's one of those instances that brings into play a whole bunch of different uh, things that really are quite often enmeshed in these sorts of things. You have imbalances of power. You have 
sexual politics, you have the use of shame, you have all these other sorts of things. And, and from what I understand, I, I actually saw the, the professor give a presentation at a privacy conference in, in Toronto uh, a couple months ago. He's unemployable now. If you look for his name on your favorite search engine, uh, all of the things that he's actually accomplished in his career are nowhere to be seen. And it's entirely about this particular incident. Yeah, I mean, sending a dick pic under duress in your 40s, you know. But again, you make a law with uh, Amanda Todd in mind. Well, that law is is for everyone, you know. Well, that's right. And I've sometimes heard in this discussion, well, if we're going to have cyberbullying laws, it's about protecting children. It's about the Amanda Todds and the Retea Parsons. But I've also, I've, I've had clients and, and have, have been across the table from people who have lost their jobs and ruined their careers because of somebody taking an image of them and their spouse and posting it online in a context that's absolutely horrible. And that got circulated around the person's workplace and, uh, and they, were, they were out of a job. Like you said on the outset, uh, a dumpster fire, huh? What did uh, Leonard Cohen say? And he's seen the future. Your private life will suddenly explode. <laughs> I hope that's not the future we have in front of us. I hope that we can manage to keep some semblance of, of civility. And at least to me, kind of privacy is about an individual's ability to control their own information as it goes out there. And so in the revenge porn context is where that control has been wrested away from them, has been ripped away from them. And this then very intimate information about them is kind of plastered in a public forum in, in a way that's absolutely not, uh, not appropriate. And so allowing people to maintain that control over their information, I think, is a, is a pretty important thing that we should be striving towards. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Email me at any time. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. I always tell you guys to go to our website. The truth is there's no rhyme or reason to when we publish on our website. It's just sort of random if you go there, if there's new stuff up there, because we only publish news stories when we have news to report. So I'm going to tell you to do something different this week. I'm going to tell you to like us on Facebook. If you like us on Facebook, our news stories will come to you. You don't have to come to us. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is produced by Kevin Sexton and Allie Graham. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.